Hey, Mary, we have a very special episode for you today. We had the opportunity to interview Simon Doonan about his upcoming book, Drag, The Complete Story, with all proceeds going to the Alley Forney Center. Uh, so please enjoy this wonderful interview. Colin, any thoughts before uh, I play this this wonderful uh, little session? I definitely was not well-dressed enough for this interview, but thank God there was no camera on. Yes. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, Simon called in so he didn't have to see the jeans that I'm wearing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the target realness on the other end of the line. If only he knew. Uh, but anyway, this interview is uh, was lovely. Oh, and, I can't believe how many times he said Mary. <laughs> yeah, so consider that a, a deep tease act one gun yeah. um, for a wonderful 30 minutes ahead. Yeah, Mary. So check out the interview and then go and buy this book. Drag the complete story out now. All right, Marys, we are very excited today to have the creative ambassador for Barney's New York and the author of Drag, The Complete Story. Please welcome our fabulous guest, Mr. Simon Doonan. How are you, Marys? <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a dream that you're calling us Marys. <laughs> oh. Uh, well, my generation, everybody was called Mary, you know? Yeah. So. We, I feel like, you know, we, we're sort of reclaiming Mary as, as like, yeah, we need to, you know, bring, if we don't make these references, we lose these references and bringing Mary back into the lexicon. <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember years ago um, going to Fire Island with a friend of mine who was actually called Mary. <laughs> and every time I would introduce her to a group of gays on the beach, you know, they would say, Round here, that's a boy's name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're uh, anybody's a Mary so long as they're listening. That's that's kind of our policy. Uh, so let's let's dive in. Let's talk about drag the complete story. Uh, yeah. So Simon, I want to know what prompted you to write the book. Um, well, actually, the publisher that I work with in London, Lawrence King. I just done a book with them about soccer players, you know, the culture around soccer, because I'm a big soccer fan. Oh. And so it was a humorous take on the culture of soccer. And they said to me, do you want to do a book on drag? And I thought, this is a great time to do a book on drag because it's so much is propelling drag forward at the moment. Everything from, you know, the politics of gender and the Trump bump and the politicizing of drag and mm. the new vision of look queens. And it's just become an immensely dynamic um, field. So I thought, great, there, there's a great, this is a great time to do a comprehensive history of drag. Because with a book, you kind of have to respond to what's going on in the culture. You can't just sort of do it Unless, unless there's some reason to do it. Why drag? Why now? Well, there's a million reasons, you know, not the least of which is RuPaul. Right, RuPaul, uh, who is also featured in the book. Uh, you you kind of touched upon another one of my questions, which is this idea of, like, drag being mainstream. Uh, do you think that drag is becoming mainstream or is mainstream? Did it happen sooner? What, is, what does mainstream mean to you when it comes to drag? Um, well, yeah, I think drag has been democratized. It's no longer just, you know, a group of people like me in the East Village going to the Pyramid Club. <laughs> it's become something that's available 
uh, to the broader culture, which to me is just a good thing. I'm a, belie- I'm a Democrat. I believe in spreading it around when you've got something magical. And in history, you know, drag was very popular. Mm. If you look at Victorian England, the musicals, there were drag kings and drag queens like Julian Eltinge, who were hugely popular and, um, you know, drew a wide audience. I feel like, you know, sort of reading this book and and going through each of the categories, essentially, of drag, it it almost feels like you've you've sort of done this drag ball of of calling the categories of of um, historical drag and black drag and comedy drag. Um, I'm curious how you how you took on this project and figured out how to organize this this world and this art form into a book. Well, initially I started off doing it chronologically, and I quickly realized there was enormous gaps. I mean, you know, I don't know any Marys who are still around from the Middle Ages. And who have VHS tapes of the drag that was going on down there. So in other words, history is very uneven in the way it's recorded. So it's very, very hard to do it chronologically. So I thought it has to be done more thematically. And within those themes, whether it's drag kings or art drag or political drag, radical drag, um, you know, there, there are history history arcs within each theme you know so it worked much better and i think it makes for a more interesting book yeah yeah i i totally see that that you can kind of see the the evolution within each uh each category and then there's where there where there's the overlap and where you kind of see one queen in one category move into another um in different ways throughout their career did you find uh any of those categories uh that excited you the most or that were most surprising while you were kind of researching and writing the book? Um, I guess the most fun one to write was art drag mm. because, you know, that's become now the link between art and drag um, is sort of been emphasized since Lee Bowery came on the scene. And that's a growing category, and but a category again with a history. You know, we think about artists like Marcel Duchamp sure. and, they use drag as a part, as a form of surrealism. So yeah, art drag was really fun, and and finding out how far back it went, and um, yeah, that one was groovy. But it was basically the whole thing was just the most fun three year project. You know, it's, it was a lot of research and writing and rewriting, but it was just um, hilarious and fun. No complaints. And uh, I love all of the infused in the book are almost uh, little anecdotes uh, when you were there or like when you were like, oh, and I saw this or I was at this performance. I wondered if you could share any any story, maybe the first drag show you ever saw or the most memorable drag show that you ever saw. Well, the first thing that springs to mind is the Love Ball in the late 80s. You know, Suzanne Barch is a very old friend of mine. And back then, all of our friends were dying in the 80s. It was a terrible time. And mm. we didn't really know what to do because we were very young, too. You know, I was right. um, in my 30s. And um, so we decided, Suzanne decided, because she's a visionary, to take this format of a voguing ball, which, by the way, back then, no one had even heard of. She dragged me to, you know, the Paris Burning Ball in um, Harlem back in the 80s and said, this is voguing you know and i believe we could structure a great charity event around this and integrate all these incredible queens 
Avis Pandavis, Pepper Labeja, Dorian Corey, get them all in there, but also bring in new, fresh ideas and other people who are, introduce them to this incredible subculture. And that event, the Love Ball, I think it was 1989, um, Madonna came, every groovy person on earth who was living in New York City came to that event at Roseland. Wow. And Madonna saw the House of Extravaganza, and she... Um, then, you know, saw how magical they were and booked them all to go on her tour and she did the song Vogue and blah, blah, blah. So that particular event that everyone on earth, including RuPaul, Bunny, the whole Meshuggan, a lot of them, they were all at that event. So that was um, very seminal. But, you know, every night at the Pyramid Club was seminal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think, you know, reading this, discovering just... Behind the drag, there are just these amazing lives and these amazing personalities um, that I think in some places even mentioned like could make an amazing movie. I, I think the one in particular that I was not familiar with at all and I just would love to see the biography of is Gladys Bentley. Mm. I just fascinated. Yes. Um, Gladys Bentley was um, part of what was called the pansy craze in Harlem between the wars. You know, Harlem was this glittering place of cabarets and and uh, glamour. And Gladys Bentley, um, in her butch drag and her tuxedo, you know, ruled the roost and um, had a very interesting life. And I think, yes, that's a movie, don't you think? And Missy Elliott should play Gladys <laughs> Bentley. I was thinking, yeah, who would play her in that? Yes, that would be amazing casting. <laughs> yes, 100%. Um, yeah, and then there was oh, there was someone else. Obviously, Dorian Corey, I think that's a story. Oh, that... that story. I can't believe I didn't know about that story. Yeah. I can't believe it either because it was a cover story of New York Magazine at the time, but, you know, you were probably at home watching the Brady Bunch. <laughs> <laughs> Probably, or yeah, Rugrats or yeah. something. <laughs> uh, so yeah, Dory and Corey, uh, just for our listeners, just a little taste. Do you mind uh, just kind of uh, the, the yeah. thesis of that story? Dory and Corey is uh, the incredibly dignified drag queen who, and I think she was trans actually, so mm -hmm. trans woman drag queen who is in Paris is Burning, and she's the one who philosophizes about life and explains mopping and reading and throwing shade and um after she died it was found that there was a corpse in her apartment right. during that filming Wild. so um you know you can read the whole story online it's very interesting and she was a formidable character and apparently a great scrabble champion so <laughs> i wish i'd played scrabble with her <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, that's a unique evening. It's a game of Scrabble with Dorian Corey. Yeah. <laughs> um, I also was very fascinated by, uh, was it Charlotte von Malsdorf? Uh, I believe she had a... Oh, yes. That was incredible. I Am My Own Wife. I mean, it, it was a book. It was a stage show. It was a documentary. Some people might be familiar with um, Frau, Frau von Malsdorf. Um, her story is so amazing. And, you know you realize the brutality of history and the brutality that drag queens have been subjected to. You know, we think about her life, um, you know, during in Nazi Germany and subsequently, and, and the lives of drag queens and gay people back then, they were put into concentration camps along with Jewish people and Romani people. And um, then after the war, they were 
immediately imprisoned because being gay was illegal. Mm. Oh, you have a pink triangle on. Okay, you can leave the concentration camp because the war's over, but we're going to imprison you. So, I mean, can you imagine anything more horrifying? And, and then eventually, decades later, the German government apologized. But her story is, is really harrowing, and, but also fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you open your book uh, talking about Medusa and the idea of Medusa. And I'm going to just quote real quick that drag allows us to stare down our darkest, most irrational, misogynist fears. Uh, and it's just interesting right now because there's this uprising of uh, 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 led by the Boulay brothers uh of this idea of monster drag and how uh, now drag, there's another sect of drag queens that are actually becoming monsters, actually becoming the Medusas. Uh, and I just kind of wanted to maybe ask about the Medusa figure, this idea that drag is lethal uh, in a sense to society, kind of in quotes, lethal, right? Uh, and, and where you came up uh, or, or why that is kind of how you start the book. Um, well, I, wanted to start off talking about glamour drag. You know, in, in drag history terms, there's a, there's a, there is a difference between comedy drag and glamour drag. And hi historically, a lot of straight guys did comedy drag. They would make themselves look like some old hag. And, Barry Humphreys, you know, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and glamour drag was sort of separate, trying to look like a beautiful, gorgeous woman. Very successful people tend to combine the two, like RuPaul. But glamour drag has been sort of slightly somewhat separate, and usually gay men have done it. Mm. And I thought, what is it that makes it very compelling? And watching RuPaul's Drag Race, I was always struck by the fact that these very, you know, happy, skip-along, good-natured young gay boys walk into the studio in the morning, and then they transform themselves into these very terrifying, sometimes glamorous, um, fire-breathing, slightly, you know, definitely, it's definitely a power grab. You become powerful. You become, you know, um, I have a great quote from Trixie Mattel in my book, like, oh, you know, you have, I have that quote. You, you have the right to slay because you are the Oh, God, I'm so senile, oh, I can't remember no, it's okay. it. okay, I have it right then, here. It's when you're in drag, it's your license to kill because you are the butt of the joke. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think also, um, you know, you're... I mean, it's very complicated why someone might do drag. And I think the Medusa idea is part of the story, which is, you know, it's a way of... All of us have these sort of Freudian, deep-seated... Uh, anxieties about female nature and our mothers and stuff like that. And I think drag has historically performed a therapeutic function, which allows people to sort of, um, you know, sort of ventilate some of these, these obsessions and nightmarish ideas. I think probably as, as drag becomes more out there and more, more commonplace, you know, there are other reasons why people might do it. You know, in the past, like women dressed up as men in order to save their lives, right. to hide from rampaging armies and rape and God knows what. So now we live in a kind of gentler time. So I think there's going to be other reasons. But you still see this Medusa effect where, you know, some 
easy breezy young queen or you know some nice young mary <laughs> will transform themselves into sort of this uh, much taller much more impressive um figure who very much is like a medusa so i make the analogy with medusa um who you know had to be uh, Perseus couldn't look directly at the Medusa. He had to look at her in his shield in order to locate her and decapitate her. You know, so Freud saw all kinds of castration anxieties in that. And it, it's sort of fascinating and hilarious to look at drag through the lens of mythology. Mm. And um, I thought, you know, in a book, you, you do have an obligation to sort of think around things. Why does this phenomenon exist? Why have people been doing this for centuries? Why is it so compelling? So you have to sort of dissect it and come up with theories. So feel free to disagree. Oh, no, I, I absolutely love it. And then even the connection you make with uh, just this idea of transforming into lethal goddesses and supermodels in the 80s and just uh, the the change of what a supermodel did and what they looked like, uh, even female porn stars and things. Um, just that I, that economy that was created by becoming this Medusa or this lethal goddess. Uh, I mean, it connects with DragCon, which just happened, right? This idea that it's now open to cis women and, and kids. They're all inspired by this power that comes from transforming. Yeah, and, and the language of drag, the... Um, details of drag the wigs the exaggerated makeup the height the the emphasis the exaggeration you can take that and apply it in other contexts now which people do in the context of art in the context of fashion outside of the gay world outside of um the the gender specifics you know you can apply that that in into different contexts i think on that note one of the things you mentioned in the book that i just like thought was worth underlining and would love to hear your thoughts on is, is this idea that now is a great time to be a drag king. Um, can you talk about that? Oh yeah. I, I mean, I have a very meaty chapter on drag Kings. Um, and I've always been fascinated by women dressing up as men. And obviously there's a power grab there and there is, um, you know, some women have done it to make money. It's been very lucrative for women in the past to dress up as men like Vesta Tilly, Hetty King. They made really great coin, you know, during the turn of the century. Um, not the last one, the one before that. <laughs> <laughs> um, dressing as men and making fun of the patriarchy. Mm. So it's been a way for women to satirize things about men that they don't like, you know, and and uh, Victorian crowds loved seeing these women twirling mustaches and, you know, exhibiting toxic masculinity and making fun of, of men in a in society that was very patriarchal. So, um, yeah, no, I'm a big fan of drag kings. And I think that happens today. Like Meryl Streep dragged up as Donald Trump. Mm. And um, that was one of the best ways to to satirize him and to make fun of him. And, um, sh you know, Melissa McCarthy dressed up as Sean Spicer. Brilliant. So yeah. it's a great way to satirize somebody that you feel is patriarchal or oppressive is for a woman to dress up as that person. And Murray Hill oh, does Murray that Hill. brilliantly oh. because in her 
with her great finesse and her theatrical flair, she she sort of um, makes fun of toxic masculinity in the in the most brilliant way, um, which you know we need satire in the culture. It's a great way of diffusing people's anxieties and concerns about things. It's a very healthy way of airing concerns rather than you know, attacking somebody in a more conventional manner to satirize them like that is brilliant. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it gets people thinking and talking versus fighting and disagreeing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, uh, I think in, uh, I think, I know in your book you talked about Yves Saint Laurent uh, just kind of fighting against the hyper-feminine after World War II, uh, that like Stepford look, uh, you know, bringing pantsuits back. Uh, and of course, we're all right, Mary, so we constantly talk about Diane Keaton <laughs> uh, with her bow ties and her pantsuits. Uh, and, and obviously, Marlena Dietrich, uh, I wrote down. Janelle Monet, I think, is also bringing that back into fashion. Uh, just that idea of butching up a little bit. Um, it's very fashionable as well. Yeah, and it's very interesting because if you are a, if you are a butch dyke and you wear drag, you're going to probably look more butch. You know, mm. but if you're feminine like Bianca Jagger or Marlena Dietrich, it kind of has a very funny effect where it actually um, magnifies your femininity. So it's very interesting to watch what happens when women adopt male attire, like um, what it, how it changes their perception. So it puts you in control. You know, it's sort of a power grab. Um, so, yeah. I'm a fan. Yeah. I mean, as, as much as I love a maxi dress, I think a pantsuit excites me just as much. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you should tell your therapist that. <laughs> Noted. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I want to talk, um, just uh, uh, kind of uh, change gears here to comedy drag. Um, and obviously, comedy drag is uh, very accessible. I think it's also... Um, in 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 many ways a lot very mainstream uh, because it is so uh, accessible and because you know people can laugh um, and it's maybe it, it kind of uh, puts people at ease in a way um, and so uh, you know I, I wrote down the note nag drag uh, which I thought was a great little term um, and I don't know I right now it's 2019 and we're kind of in this like call out woke culture and I wonder how you think comedy drag is uh, helping that movement or how it uh, needs to persevere through this movement? Uh, well, I think queens like Lady Bunny and Bianca Del Rio, they're very good at satirizing some of the excesses of, of um, woke culture. You know, they take that on because they can, you know. Mm. And uh, again, drag is very, very therapeutic. Um, you know, comedy drag in in Victorian times, I think it definitely was a lot about maternal ambivalence. You know, back then, um, people were used to these sort of terrifying archetypes of governesses and Queen Victoria. And like, if you look at Alice in Wonderland, there's, you know, crazy queens and duchesses who mm. are like sadistic. And I think it was a very healthy way for when I was a kid, you know, all of our school teachers were older women who would spank us with rulers, and there were a lot of angry war widows. Um, but you don't, those archetypes aren't really there anymore. We live in a kinder, gentler time. But um, comedy drag will take on whatever is going on in the culture. And, you know, someone like Bunny, 
she'll take on the president. She'll, you know, she'll address serious political stuff with, with you know, great deftness. Um, uh, not deftness, deftness. She's very <laughs> great skill. Yes. Lady Bunny will take on political stuff with great skill, and uh, but she'll also make fun if people if people are hauling her on the carpet for some perceived um, politically incorrect remarks. She'll make fun of that too, you know. Mm. So comedy drag is great for keeping us sane when we're if we're getting a little too, um, you know, carried away. Persnickety. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I feel like Bianca Del Rio often has that refrain of like, remember, I'm a man in a dress here. Like, don't take any of this too seriously. It's like that yeah. That. And, you know, I grew up in the 1960s, so I'm a 60s person. So I never took anything very seriously. <laughs> so I'm a very freewheeling person who doesn't really get offended by anything. But I know it's, you know, the culture shifts and all. There's uh, so many, so many things that, were let go and not reacted to are being reacted to now and that's a very good thing you know people are more aware of of speech and discrimination and that's an entirely positive thing sure uh so with that since you're a 60s kid have you ever done drag oh my god are you kidding <laughs> i have pictures of me when i was 10 years old in drag <laughs> taken by my mother like english people are always in drag we're never not in dragging up like it's a big part of the british culture all my straight friends i have pictures of crazy parties in the 70s at the blitz club and then there with a lot of my straight male friends and they're all dressed up as supermarket checkout girls and god knows what so like drag um you know it was a big part of television comedy when i was a kid i talk about that in my book like um we were drowning in drag after mm. the war in the 60s and 70s. And the 70s was a time of, um, you know, unisex and glam rock. And right. um, then we moved into the new romantic period with Boy George, Marilyn, all that period in the early 80s. So, like, drag is very big in the English psyche, and, you know, uh, Apart from anything, you have pantomimes. Right. Where we, you know, pantomimes are a big tradition. I explain it in the book. Every year in towns all across England, these um, sort of strange children's entertainments that always have a big drag component that are very fun, very bawdy. You know, the Brits sure. are very bawdy. Um, yeah, I love the archetype you mention in the book about Lily Savage being the tart with a heart in leopard slacks. I think that sums up so much for me. Yes, completely. And I, for a long time, I had a reputation for dragging up as the Queen of England. Oh, yeah. And when I lived in L.A. in the 1980s, people used to book me to come and, like, cut the ribbon on a restaurant or a <laughs> nightclub. And then Barney's, I did it once for Barney's. We had a store open in Worcester on Worcester Street in Soho and the CEO at the time wanted some celebrity to come and cut the ribbon and we thought oh we'll punk him and I'll do it dressed as the Queen of England there's pictures of that online you can find them um so yeah honey I've done drag and and my birthday is Halloween oh of course <laughs> so well, you do the math yeah. this was in your destiny yeah <laughs> 
do you have a favorite drag queen? I know you mentioned a few of your favorites in the book, but I wonder if you could uh, talk about them here. Um, well, uh, I'm, it's, I try to stay very agnostic, you know, okay. when you're doing a book, but <laughs> I have to say I'm very impressed with Violet Tchotchke and her finesse and Sasha Velour, I guess because I'm in the fashion world right. and those, you know, the ones who present themselves in such a stylish way, but I also love bawdy, crazy messed up drag too like so i don't know it's very hard to say um the fabulous thing about rupaul's what rupaul has done is you get to un to know these people so you get to see their vulnerabilities and mm. you fall in love with miss vanji yeah. you fall in love with vixen you see these people revealing their vulnerabilities and you know, it's hard to pick one out. I'm sorry. Oh, no, don't apologize. We're, we're often the same way. So. Yeah. Well, and I feel like what's great about this book, and certainly my own experience, is that it's, it's, it's a reference point to then go into rabbit holes and YouTube and the internet of they're just names and like little stories to then dive in and see these performances and to see these creations they've done. And like, it, I think for me, it's like, I think I know what my, who my favorite drag queens are. And now I have like 200 more people to go, to go get to know after this book. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I mean, I'm not an academic, so I didn't, I didn't see this as a history textbook. But I saw it as being a jumping off point mm. to get people excited about history, especially maybe younger people who weren't so familiar with, um, you know, drag in ancient Rome, for Christ's sake. So, um, you know, and that, that could be fun and interesting and kind of shocking as well. Um, I wanted to get people excited about history because I love history. But, you know, now kids have so much to keep up with in their current world with their phones and their social media and their, you know, their, that I guess history could take a back seat, you know, which is not great because I find history very reassuring. When sure. you read about history and the awful things that happen, you actually think, "My life's really not that bad." You mm, know, that's yeah. really comforting. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I wanted to uh, give you a moment to talk about uh, the book and its proceeds, which is actually really spectacular, uh, and uh, uh, the Ali Forney Center. Uh, so, can you just talk about that? Yes. Well, I am donating 100% of my proceeds from this book to the Ali Forney Center in Harlem. And I decided to do that while I was writing the book. I thought, I'm sort of harvesting all this magic from all these people and creating a book. It just sort of started to seem a bit, um, I don't know, uh, inappropriate to just shove all the money in my handbag and go shopping at Gucci or Barney's. <laughs> um, so I that's I, I reached out to a few couple of charities and ended up picking Ali Forney. Um, they do great work. I live in New York City, so I'm very aware of them. They're in Harlem. They're helping LGBTQ youth, particularly homeless people. Right. And so yeah, um, Ali Forney. Great. That's great. Um, and so the book is coming out. You know, when this when this interview comes out, it'll be uh, September seventeenth, which is when the book uh, "Drag: The Complete Story" is being released. Uh, where can people find this book? Oh, darling, you can anywhere. Amazon, <laughs> Barney's. My husband, Jonathan Adler, is going to be selling it at his store. I'm like, um, yeah, it's the publisher works with Chronicle Books 
in the U.S. So it's Lawrence King in England, Chronicle Books here. So the distribution is magnificent. That's great. Yeah, I'm I'm so excited kind of reading it and knowing like, oh, this is the world's about to discover this book. And it's this reference point for people who are deeply familiar with drag, for people who are discovering it for the first time. It feels incredibly accessible and informed that like both audiences can get a lot out of this. So uh, thank you for doing this, honestly. Oh, darling, the pleasure's all mine. Um, you know, I, I, it was a really fun project, no complaints. Obviously, writing a book is a lot of work. Mm. All the pictures and the captions and rewriting and things fall out and you have to rewrite and people die and you have to dive into the text and correct things. So it's, it's a lot doing a book. I mean, I didn't do much else for the last three years other than appearing on my Emmy-nominated TV show, of yes. course. Of course, of course, of course. That <laughs> do you was know a- about my Emmy-nominated TV show? Oh, of course. And I heard a moth story about it, too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. Um, making it yeah. with Nick Offerman and Amy Poehler and Dana Isom Johnson is the other judge. She and I are judges. And so, yeah, I... I do that. The second series is about to air in November, and then um, hopefully we'll be shooting third series. And the Emmys are coming up, actually, so I'm going to be chewing on my Lee Press-On now <laughs> and watching the TV, hoping that we get, an, you know, because it's gotten nominated, but then Amy and Nick, you know, hopefully they'll win. Yeah, it's such a great example of kind media, which is something that we talk about on this podcast a lot and how, I don't know, we kind of need it a little bit more right now. Uh, media that is kind to the reality performers. Uh, it, it just celebrates people so well. You're lovely on the show and I, I love every challenge. So uh, it's, it's, a, it's really fabulous. So thank you. <laughs> Making it NBC. And, um, you know, that was a big stipulation of Amy and Nick. They told us, they said, no fake conflict, no Mm. making people cry, no, you know, they wanted it to be positive. And I think that's why it's a gigantic hit, because people can actually sit and watch it with their their kids and not worry about porn and machine guns (laughs) popping up on the screen. Well, and it's like that experience people have watching like the Great British Bake Off, where they're just, you know, in tears and biting their own Lee Press-Ons, watching a souffle, you know, rise and fall. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> uh, well, this has been uh, an absolute pleasure. We really appreciate you coming on and chatting with us, uh, giving us an opportunity to uh, discover this book. Um, where all could uh, our Marys find you if they wanted more of Simon Doonan? Um, well, I'm on Instagram. Okay. Um, I think it's just Simon Doonan. So, uh, yeah, I'm on Instagram and binge watch the last series of Making It. Yes. Um, let's see. Um, yeah, that's about it. Proud Mary keeps on rolling. Yeah, come on, Proud Mary. I also, just a big shout out to your other moth story, uh, The Christmas Elf, uh, which you told about decorating the White House for Christmas. Uh, that story is brilliant. Oh, thank you. Um, I Yeah, it was a real privilege. It was the first year that Mr. and Mrs. Obama were in the White House, and I was part of the team that decorated it. So, um, yeah, I was very lucky, and I was very happy. Barbara Bush's balls. I, it, was just, it was such a great story. I, I'm sorry, Mary. So if, if you can, go check out Simon's Stories on the Moth. Uh, that's also a podcast as well. <laughs> um. You know, being from the window dressing community, um, you know, everyone called everyone Mary. It was like, Mary, load the staple gun, you know, like, <laughs> so 
I'm very used to the idea of people calling each other Mary, and I have so many friends that still call each other Mary from because I'm 67 years old, mm-hmm. you know. So, like, um, I'm the Mary generation. Mm. <laughs> well, it's coming back, Mary. Yeah. So no fear. Yeah, we're working on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, no, fly the Mary flag. Oh yes. Oh yeah. Full mast. Yeah. <laughs> The uh, HMS Mary. Yes. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Simon, thank you so much for this. Uh, Mary's, please. Uh, September seventeenth, Drag the Complete Story is out everywhere. Uh, as we mentioned, all proceeds go to the Aliforni Center. So it's a great cause. It's a great book, um, and it's a beautiful coffee table book as well. So it looks good and it reads well. And I tried to make it funny. So oh, as much is, as yeah. I was stuffing in academic, well, not academic stuff, but facts and history, um, I think it's hilarious, don't you? Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Uh, like I poured my witty self into those captions. So yeah. I think <laughs> just in case anybody listening to this thinks, oh, what's he banging on about Medusa and mythology? I actually think that I did a good job of balancing that with humor, though I say it myself. I shouldn't be giving myself a blurb. <laughs> well, of course you should, Mary. Of course. Yeah. No, and it, it is actually one of the things I enjoyed the most about it. It is so readable because you hear your voice through it, because of those quips, because of the captions. It's just a fun book to explore oh well, thank you love well and thank you uh we are we're so honored to be able to share this with everybody and um best of luck with of course with making it and with everything that comes after the release of uh, drag the complete story fab all right <laughs> talk thank soon thank you <laughs> bye mary go mary <laughs> <laughs> Well, Marys, that was everything for us. Uh, we're still kind of coming down. Yeah, um, yeah. But anyway, if you have any thoughts, obviously you can reach out to us on Twitter at AllRightMary, or you can find us on the web at www.AllRightMary.com, or you could email us at AllRightMaryPodcast at gmail.com if you have any questions about the book, or if you uh, just want to queen out about the interview, or you've already read the book and you, want, you have some thoughts, please let us know. And I, I am also on Instagram at Johnny Also. And you could, of course, hear more of me on my podcast, In the Details, a celebration of nuance. You can find more of me on Twitter at Colin Drucker, Instagram at Colin Drucker underscore, and you can get more of both of us at patreon.com backslash All Right Mary. All Right Mary. All Right Mary, where we are just diving into our All Right Scary season of uh, Spooky Matreons. I think if there was a last chance lip sync for this uh, interview, it would be Material Girl by Madonna. Yeah. But that's been done. So. It has. So, um... <laughs> So we'll just leave you with good old 8-Bit Mary. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, no shame in that game. And we will see you all again real soon.